Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Joe Costable, and if you're not familiar with Joe, Joe is a New York-based mixing engineer who primarily works on a lot of rock, alternative, and pop records, and he's worked with artists such as American Authors, Good Charlotte, Rob Thomas, Bayside, Young Rising Sons, and a whole bunch more. And inside of this conversation, we get into a great chat about his workflow And one of the things that you'll find really impressive and maybe even surprising to you is his lack of compression in a lot of his mixes. And it's a decision that he has personally chosen to to make. And inside of this episode, we get into that conversation about why compression isn't always the thing to use. No matter how much you've been taught that you should always use compression, I think Joe brings up some really interesting points about why you might not want to actually use it and some other ways that you can still get the same sort of effect but without actually using compression. So we get into a really cool chat about that. We also talk about some of his workflow hacks, including some software that he loves to use to streamline his process, make the mixing process go much faster, keep more organized, and to also help with the revisions process as well. So I think this episode is going to give you a lot of great ideas for things that you can implement into your own mixes. So let's just jump right into it. Joe Costable, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How are you doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. For people who might not be familiar with your background and how you ultimately got to where you are today, can you give us that story, how you got into music and all the steps that you took? Yeah, well, I got I got into it at a young age, um, you know, about 12 or 13 years old playing bass um, and then making some songs and then needing to record them. So then got the four track recorder, little cassette, Fostex X14, and uh, really just kind of took off from there. I always played in bands you know, going all through high school, and I was always the one to record our songs. Um, and then after high school, I went to the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences in Tempe, Arizona, to just kind of, I didn't want to go to college, like a real college, I just wanted to do recording. I, I always wanted to, and a lot of um, teachers and guidance counselors tried to steer me away from it, but it just, I knew school wasn't going to work out, so I went to audio recording school, and um, after that, as part of the course, I did do an internship. So LA, New York being so competitive, I went out to Houston, which this was 2006 when Houston was really big hip hop scene down there. It's really a lot of the big acts were coming out of. And I was in probably the biggest studio to be doing hip hop records at the time, which was new for me because I grew up on rock and that kind of stuff. And that I, I'd spent a few years down there and then things kind of went south in that world and I had to move back to New York. So being fresh in New York and not knowing anybody, I wound up with an internship at Island Def Jam, which lasted until they they fired pretty much everybody that was working there in the AR department. And I managed to keep sneaking in long enough where eventually somebody gave me a job, but the whole time I was there, nobody really knew where I worked. They just, they saw me, they knew me, but they didn't know who I was working for with department. And then one day I was asked, like somebody was, came up to me and was like, you're an audio engineer, right? And I was like, oh man, this is, it's up. They know I'm not, <laughs> not supposed to be here. So I was like, yeah. I was like, why? And they're like, well, we need somebody that can talk to the producers and get all of the deliverables because we keep getting the files are bad. We need master tapes and they send us mixes. Like they have, nobody understands. We need somebody that can speak the language. So I got hired. I got a job doing that and um, for another few years, which is cool. I met a lot of big producers and, and engineers and mixers. I knew all the mastering houses and I would just move the files around from once they got recorded, then to getting mixed, and then to getting mastered, and then to production for the actual CDs then. Um, so that was a cool gig, and I I'd made a lot of good connections. And then eventually I had to get out of that world and get back into the studio. And was the whole time I was kind of freelancing engineering, but that's, that's when I really just 
went into it 100%. I didn't have the day job anymore. I was just looking for bands to record, you know, whenever. And I would book out studios and do records that way. And that led to meeting Shep Goodman, who was working with Aaron Aceta, and I became their engineer working on all their artist development projects. So they would find artists and kind of polish them up, write the songs, hopefully get them a deal, and then you know release them that way, kind of like on an imprint label, but they would eventually move on to the major labels. So for six years, I just engineered all of their records. And I would be doing writing sessions during the day, and then at night, I would, after that, I would go home, I'd eat dinner, go back to the studio, and I would mix for somebody else. That was a freelance gig. I'd be mixing till three, four o'clock in the morning, and then go home for a little bit and go back to the studio for like 10 a.m. to do another writing session with those guys. And because I had been doing that for a few years, it, it just got to a point where the, the mixing work was taking over and I just didn't have time to do it all. So that was maybe six, seven years ago. I, I, broke, I broke away from those guys and just started mixing full time. And it's just been, it's been mainly mixing ever since. Mostly music. I do some film and TV work, um, but you know, ninety-five percent of it is is music. That's amazing. It sounds like those guidance counselors that were trying to steer you away from it just didn't have any idea about your drive for how much this meant to you. Because I you think know, you put in yeah, that energy, I, well, I don't know. Work. I don't know if if anyone if anyone did. I don't know if I really understood how. I knew I wanted to do it, but I don't think I realized till later on that was uh, I really didn't want to do anything else like that was, that was it but I think it's their job to like kind of continue on the education path right I mean nobody wants to see a kid like leave school and like chase a dream of being a, a musician or, which <laughs> I didn't want to be in a band I had played in bands so I didn't want to I wasn't trying to be a rock star I was trying to make the records because I would sit home listening to these songs like the, you know somebody's in charge of making this sound like that that's a really cool job I want to I want to get into that world behind yeah. the scenes yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah. so then when you when you got your job working at uh at Def Jam were you you said A&R were you working in A&R yeah I was I was in the A&R department um I I guess I, I was a coordinator of sorts with, with my job with moving the actual files you know um I was I wasn't signing the bands I was just you know the uh I don't know the the go between between the label and the everybody in the studios. Yeah, that's that's still a pretty cool gig though, because then it definitely allowed you to, I'm sure, network with a lot of the yeah exactly. Musicians I met studios. everybody that way, you know, and it, it's people that I still work with to this day, you know. Um, and sometimes it's funny when you you get a project and it was somebody from like that life, and now like you know, ten years later, it's like, oh yeah, I remember. Oh, you're the guy at the label. Like, <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. How yeah. it all works out. Do you feel like having worked for a big label has given you more to think about when it comes to music production and like the expectations that people at that level would typically have? I think I think going to school and starting out in a commercial studio is that's that's where that comes from because you can't be it, it's got to be right. You can't you can't just like half-ass the recording process. I mean, it's either great or it's it's just okay, and obviously major labels don't want just okay recordings. It's not how they keep the lights on, you know? So, so it, 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 that's just my work ethic in, in the studio, I guess. It came, it came out of that world. Would you say that there was like anything, like when you compare, you know, amateur mixes to kind of what these bigger labels are expecting, would you say that there was like anything that stood out to you as like, this is like the thing that always has to be the case? Like it always has to be in my productions or... In in terms of like a major label, sound, yeah, like a major I label guess, sound, and, yeah, like yeah, in quotes, um, it's it's just great, just clear. I mean, there there you can't have excuses for for anything in there, you know. You you can't you can't be like, oh well, you know, we didn't have a great mic that day, or or you know, we we lost the the hard drive, so we had to start over. But the other version was really good. it just has to be it's it's got to be it. I mean, yeah, I don't know if there's anything particular that stuck out, and they just sounded great. And it was something to always chase. And I mean, I'll admit there were a couple of times where I had I had the session files and I'd open them up and see what these guys were doing, you know. So it was like continuing my education that way. 
without actually being in the room with these mixers, but I could see what they were doing in these in these sessions, which in, in back then, not back then, I mean, it was 2009, 10, I guess that's, yeah, 10, 11 years ago. Um, they were still hybrid. They weren't all in the box. So some of these sessions looked like they had nothing on it, you know, just faders because it was all going into a console where they mm -hmm. did everything else. Um, but I could take those sessions and, and the final song and, bring it home and like kind of try to match it up you know yeah these are the drums they started with how do they get to this and you know how do they get the vocals to sound like that or how can i get the vocals i have the track and i have the end result and i got to fill in the pieces and figure it out fair yeah and it's I, almost like you I were definitely able to learned like, you were almost able to like reverse engineer what they yeah, were exactly. doing to, to some degree right i think that's yeah. awesome i mean like to, to actually be able to hear the the stems or the, the individual tracks for for a lot of these pro recordings like I think it's surprising sometimes when you get into these sessions to hear what what's there and and how big they were able to turn something or sometimes sometimes how little they were they had to do because they just got so right at the source right yeah it's both ways it's like wow how do they get that to turn into as good as that is or or yeah or it's the other way it's like that that came out of the microphone like that you know yeah which is cool and that's and still today like when I get sessions like I did I did a song last week where. They actually sent me their Pro Tool session, which doesn't always happen. But I, I took everything off the master fader, and I realized like these tracks do not sound like this song at all. Like it was all everything they had. There wasn't a slot left on the, on the master fader. So it's like it's everything they did on the bus that made that song sound like that. These tracks don't sound like it at all. So there was a lot of like printing some things out of their session and pulling it into mine to kind of have the border and then I can fill in everything in between. Yeah, I guess that's, I guess for some people that's like the top down approach, right? Where you just kind of start off your master fader and, and work down that way. I guess I, maybe they just being a, a working rough mix, they just kept adding to it and then adjusting. And I don't, I don't really know how they got there, but yeah, um, <laughs> certainly their, their, their rough mix sounded pretty good, but it was all on the mix bus. It wasn't anything in the tracks. So that, you know, that's interesting though, because that says a, <laughs> that says a lot about what you can get away with just on a master bus, you know. And it, it really does. I, I think mean, it does create a, a good like, argument for that top-down approach. EQ, but it sounded good that way. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think so, it does yeah. really say a lot for the top-down approach and kind of what's possible when you just you know keep it simple and don't overcomplicate. Because you know, yeah. to do it all on the individual tracks might be kind of complicated for some people to to get to that end result, right? Yeah, and to take that a step further, if you if you want to work like that, it just shows how important it is to capture this this stuff the way you want it to sound. And then when you get to the mix bus, I mean, you're just balancing faders and you throw a little EQ on everything and it's, it's it, it all fits. And ideally that's, that's how it all works, but that's not always the case. <laughs> so when you typically start a mix, like what's your mindset going into that or how do you start? Do you usually start from like a specific instrument or what's your process normally look like? Um, it, it depends. I'll listen to the rough mix or, or producer mix, I guess we should call them now. They, they get pretty precious about them. So I, I'll <laughs> listen to that. And um, I'll usually, as I'm listening to it, just have a, an idea of, oh, this is this chorus really open up or that guitar needs to come out more. I just have an idea of, of what I want it to sound like, what I see, what I find myself wishing it sounded like. And then I'll just kind of internalize that. And then when I pull up pull up this, this session, like I said, hopefully it, so hopefully it sounds kind of like the rough mix and not like too far off and I can kind of just start and keep going from there. Um, but it's really, I'll start with whatever grabs me. It might be a guitar solo. It might be a gang vocal. Um, sometimes those are, that's the really exciting part. So I want to shape those right the way I need them to sound. But generally, you know, rhythm section and then I'll kick on the vocals and kind of get the vocals maybe like 60% of the way, turn the lead vocals off and then keep going with like the guitars, the bass, get everything gelling. And now I have that vocal sound in my head kind of leaving space for it. So I know like when I go back to it, it that's where it is. I can kick it on and off and just kind of check it and squeeze it in where I need to. But all while I'm working on the track, I have the vocal going in my head and I'm carving out space for it. So it's a, it's a little bit of back and forth, but it's, you know, I just kind of work from left to right on it all. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you, like, 
As far as the rough mix, you had mentioned that some people are very attached to the rough mix. Yeah. So how do you strike that balance of trying to decide whether you should lean more to that rough mix sound versus like kind of take it in a different approach? I I always lean towards they have the rough mix. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my mix because it first of all I can't I'm not gonna sit here all day and chase a mix that they already have like. Um, and I need to just kind of do my mix the way I hear it and then we'll tweak it from there. If they come to me with like, here's the rough mix and we've been listening to this for six months, we really like it, then I'll fly a little closer to it. And, and usually when they say that it's the balance that they like, and then I can clear some things up throughout. But sometimes that creates more problems because now I'm creating space. They're hearing things that they didn't hear in their rough mix. And then we start getting you know, comments were trying to get it back to the rough mix and now it's too many revisions. So I, unless I'm specifically asked to fly close to the rough mix, I don't because they already have that and I just need to do, I need to do it the way I hear it just because mm-hmm. I, I'm better at that, you know? That makes sense. Yeah, I think it's it's worth having that conversation with the, with the band too or artist just to say like, how attached to this are you? Like how, was this just something you bounce right. off like, at the end of the session, or did you actually put some time into like trying to craft this into the sound you're looking for? Because right, that might and, that and might steer you in a direction. Yeah, and and I don't, I don't outright ask that, you know. Um, but if if they really like it, they'll they'll tell you that they like it. You know, here's the rough. And, and likewise, they'll tell really you if they don't. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or or you know, or they'll say like, here's the rough mix. We really didn't spend any time on it. Do your thing, or they won't even send a rough mix. So just, I just want you to do what you just. See what you come up with, which is which is cool too. But that's hard sometimes because you just you have no idea where they're trying to go with the song, other than what the tracks sound like. Um, so yeah, every every version of that has its pros and cons. But I like when they don't make me try to do the rough mix over. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, it really feels like work those days. Yeah, of course, because it's like yeah, it's reverse engineering someone else's brain, and that that's never fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in your opinion, then, what ultimately makes a great mix? Um, I think if I knew if I knew what a great mix was, I probably would be the guy mixing everybody's stuff right now. <laughs> I think, but I, I can tell you what I like about mixes, and that's space and dynamics. And I guess from being a kid with a bass guitar and trying to learn every record that I put on, I like being able to just not have to hunt for things. If I want to hear what the guitarist is playing, I can I can hear it. I can hear every note he's playing. I can hear every note the bass player is playing. Nothing's really stepping on each other. So just having that that the clarity and dynamics. I really don't like compression. I don't use a lot of it on my mixes. Um, so to me that that's what I like about you know, good mixes to me are exciting because of that. Just because of the dynamics and the the space in them. That makes a lot of sense. And I definitely hear that when I listen to your mixes. And it's interesting that you say um, that you don't really rely on compression to get your, your I instruments. Don't, like, yeah. why, um, why is that? You know, I, I don't know. In school, because I, I learned on, you know, analog consoles and two-inch tape, and they were very, they kind of drilled in us, like, don't overdo it going to tape because you can't uncompress. Like, you should just be recording as clean as you can your goal should be cleanliness, like from the mic, get it as clear to the tape, and then you can do all this stuff after. Um, obviously, there's, you know, room to do whatever you want in there, but I think that instilled in me, like, this fear of over-compressing. And so all through my career, even in the hip-hop studio, I'd only use a little bit of compression on the vocals to tape or Pro Tools then. Um, and then. And then it, it translated into my mixing because I just it never sounds good to me. I feel like I'm taking all the life out of it and, and it might just be, I don't, I don't know. I, I just prefer the dynamics with, without it. And I find that like, for, for example, on drums, I'll compress the drum bus together, but then my parallel is the same drum mix without the compression. And because I would compress it and not like it anymore. So then I would add in, the transients on the parallel, which it's, I didn't mean for it to be like a reverse way of 
doing parallel <laughs> compression, but I guess that's kind of what it is. is I, I found that I was killing the drums the way I wanted to hear them, so I would make another bus and put my transients back in with that. And I can have a little more control over it that way. And it works with guitars and, and vocals especially. Um, it's interesting because like so many people think of that parallel channel as like the mangled channel that has so I'm gonna much compression I'm going to slam it on. and add it back in. Yeah, but to do and the opposite the way, way it works. And that's the way I was taught, but I never, you know, it, it which was cool. It always worked, but it's just, yeah, trying to get a, a compressor to shape the drums it had had more shape without it. So I, I don't really use it too much. I use it where I have to, but yeah. a lot of my mix is done with EQ and faders. So then as far as, because um, the argument to be made with compression is that, you know, compression can balance everything out and level it out so that you're not maybe relying so much on automation or any of that kind of stuff. Are you using a lot more automation then to get that consistency between your tracks? No, I don't think I'm using a lot um, because I don't really ride much. I might, I might ride the lead vocal, but the lead vocal is where I use compression in, in parallel. I have a few different compressors going in parallel. Um, and then a VCA that just controls all those together. So I'll ride the, the lead vocal, but it's not really every word unless it has to be. It's more like verse to chorus or different sections. So a lot of my automation is like blocks, you know, between different sections. I might automate some guitar swells up or things that kind of jump into the next section. But I don't use, I don't use probably more, I don't think I use more automation. I, th I think I, I, the way I'm EQing, I'm just kind of leveling out the way things are poking through the mix and then allowing those transients to be there and, and those dynamics to be in there. And just if I approach it from the EQ side, it's no points are really overlapping. Everything's got like a slot to come through when it needs to. And then I don't have to go crazy. I don't, I don't know. Just I'm sure people that do a lot of automation, I see people doing it like, you know, syllable by syllable on the lead vocal. And I don't, I don't know. I don't think it needs that. <laughs> you might need more of it if you flatten everything out. So, yeah. But that, but that's just like a, to me, that's, that's a very organic way of mixing and it does keep that natural dynamic in there. And, you know, the, presumably the, most musicians, they do tend to like add their own dynamics to their performances. So the choruses, they're going to hit a little harder or that kind of thing. Or like, right. you know, they might dig into their strings a little harder on the chorus or whatever. The singers usually push a little bit more. So there is already in some way that that automation is kind of built into the performances sometimes, right? Ideally. You know, and it, it goes back to capturing the stuff the way you want it to sound, you know. But, yeah, I, th I think if I have to start, uh, maybe part of it is laziness, too. If I have to put all kinds of multiband compressors and side chains and all that, uh, it's it's just too much work, and I'll steer away from it. I'll try to do it another way. Um, and, and I think from when I started mixing to now, or a point where I was doing it, constantly i started realizing that like these it just sounds stuffed up with plugins and processing like there needs there needs to be there's got to be a way to not have all these plugins just stuffing up the mix and i feel like i can get things clearer without all this math going on and, and i guess it's all gotten better you know digital is always getting better and the, you know the pro tools summing engine wasn't always you know this good so they may have had something to do with it, but yeah, yeah, I just, I kind of went after like the less is more approach and, and it works. I mean, it's working for me, but I do a lot of EQ and that might be where the sound comes from. I don't know. Yeah. I guess there's also an argument to be made that like when you do use compression on a channel that it's sometimes bringing up a lot of that lower level stuff that now you're actually having to do more EQ and add more processing after the fact because you're trying to clean up the stuff that really was already kind of buried in the mix to begin with, right? Right. So it's, yeah, it's like anything else. You got to use it and, and pay attention to what it's doing yeah, of course. for you or to you. You had mentioned that you have, uh, the vocals are one of those things that you actually do use compression on and that you've got a couple of different compression settings for that. What's your vocal chain typically look like? Um, I, well, it changes. So this week, um, <laughs> or... <laughs> Yeah, uh, recently I've, I've been using um, the UAD uh, 1081, 
for a while I was using the SSL 4000, uh, the UAD one. Um, the one with the preamps, you can put it in the mic input and then kind of drive that that um, the preamp gain on that in in the plugin. Um, so I'll use that, and then that'll go into um, Soothe. Right now is kind of the next step. That that guy has been getting a lot of work recently, um, and, and so that'll be that's like on the lead vocal, and then. I'll have my um, delays and reverbs come off of that track, but then I'll also I'll mult that to I'll send it to like a, a vocal sidechain bus. Um, it's a parallel bus, and then I'll have an 1176 and an LA2A, and that 1176 is um, like late, like slow, and then super fast release. So it's letting transients come through, and I'm adding that because. Uh, they're usually compressing in in the tracking. So that lead vocal is coming compressed. I don't want to compress it even more, um, but I want to get some of those, do the opposite, try to get some of the syllables to jump out. And then the, uh, the LA-2A is just, you know, kind of just overall just flattening it, and then I'm adding that in. So it's kind of like a three-layer process at least. Yeah. Um, sometimes the lead vocal, that main track needs compression, but... I don't do a lot. It's more like if they didn't track with one, I have to knock some of that crazy stuff down. Oh, there's a de-esser. The de-esser is always first. So that's on the lead vocal track. Yeah. You got to de-ess before you do anything else, especially compress, because you'll never get it back. Of course, yeah, because otherwise you're bringing up all those S's in the compression and then yeah. you know, trying to... And trying then to they're make, just flat with everything else. Yeah, it makes everything sound like lispy almost. Right. Yeah, that's that's cool. So so you're kind of taking a little bit more of like a, a serial compression kind of approach with with the 1176 and the, the LA-2A. Yeah, well, they're two parallels. So the, so the lead vocal, there's really those three or sometimes four, depending on how many I do, tracks. And I'm, I can balance the tone with that. So gotcha. there's not even a whole lot of EQ going on. It's the way the compression is and then the balance of those other two compressors against it on the lead. And that makes the lead vocal sound. That's very cool. You had mentioned um, the idea of using the, like the preamp plugins that have, you know, so you can kind of gain them a little bit more. And and one thing I did notice with a lot of the tracks that I've heard of yours is that you do tend to blend in some saturation into your mixes. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> I guess I, I, <laughs> there's a lot. I was going to say, I guess to some degree, that's that's kind of making up for some of your compression a little bit as well, right? Because the more you, the more you're driving it, the more right, it's kind of compressing because that. It that in itself is compression you know i mean you're you're knocking down those edges and i do a lot there's a lot of distortion there's saturation there's whatever you want to call it um i put it on a lot and try to see how much i can get away with <laughs> <laughs> and, what is it about saturation that you like probably the compression that might be doing it. Uh, no it's you know what it is like like or that lo-fi right if, if, if you put that um it's just the avid one uh, air. Yeah, the Avid one's the great air, one. The Air Lo-Fi. I mean, if you, if you put that and just point it at, put it at like one or like point one sometimes on that the the knob on the left. I don't. I think that's the saturation. Um, if you just put down like a hi hat or claps or like side sticks, like all of a sudden that little tiny you know stick click now is like fat and you can actually there's meat to it. You can work with it and it's gonna it's gonna you're gonna hear it in a mix and that's gonna be this little point so that that one gets used like a lot on percussion um if you send me a piano track it's getting distorted like <laughs> to all hell and then add it in or sometimes that's the track i just love distorted pianos i i don't know why and do you do it in like a parallel situation again or do you just put it on the actual nope, track uh nope um i'll just put it right on there and then a piano is one where I will compress heavily too, but I'll put it right on the track. Unless, it, I mean, obviously, if it's a jazz record, we're not going to go that route. I mean, because you're going to hear the piano. But when yeah. it's when the piano is like the meat under the guitars, yeah, no chance. It's getting distorted for sure. Yeah, I guess there's that that balance of understanding what's in the forefront of the mix and you know what's what's the primary focus yeah. and and knowing how far to go with that versus mangling that too much. You know. Yeah, because it's all it's all just textures and and shapes, and 
when you when you distort things, you have control of like how much light is on it or how much grit is poking through the mix, how much you know, how many teeth you're giving it. Yeah, I guess. Do you have any tips for adding saturation, but without going too far? Or should you um, go too far? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It it depends. Uh, if you hear like I. I I distort pianos heavily, but you, it doesn't sound distorted, I guess. You know, I'll, I'll add that. Like, it doesn't sound like I put everything through a fuzz box. Um, toms, you, you put, like, Sansamp even on, like, on toms because I always have a hard time with getting toms to cut through, and they don't always need to, but as soon as you put something like Sansamp on it, you can, you can hear them. And it's, like, a weird thing where you're mixing – like to to me the balance is like a scale thing so if you have a a big sound in a mix it might not actually be a it's not usually a big sound when you solo it it's actually very little and it just fits in that slot but because of everything else going on around it it sounds like it's this huge sound but then you solo it there's no bottom end like there's no top end it's just cutting right through so the distortion will allow you to do that um kind of give like this false sense of how big something is yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like that's I, I use distortion on snares a lot because I, I feel like snare to me is like, you know, it's probably the equivalent of your Tom thing where you always struggle to get yeah. it to come through. Right. And, and I feel like when I solo snares, I'm always like, ah, this sounds so thin. And then you need that saturation to fatten it up. And now all of a sudden it has Fattens body up. now. Right. Yeah. Or 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 snare. Um, so, sometimes I'll just put like a, a blue stripe on it and smack it and get it just get it to really flatten out and yeah. get snares kind of bigger that way but um yeah it, it's i don't know there, yeah there's not really a, a trick to it it's just you know if it sounds good it is good yeah and i feel like that's one reason why a lot of people rely on samples as well because so many samples have already been compressed to hell or saturated and all that stuff so that like all of that like body and tone tends to be in these samples that people are adding to like make their thin track sound bigger right um, and and when I listen to a lot of the songs in your discography, like I, I just notice it. I think you do a really good job of blending in samples to augment your live drums and to get them sounding really big. And do so, I? If you if you know the samples are in there, I guess. <laughs> well, I just, I don't know. Like yeah. at, at least a few songs that I was listening to, like I felt no. like I could hear. Maybe maybe they're not like drum samples, but I feel like I, I was hearing like clap samples and stuff like that. Like just like extra yeah. textures that help make your drums feel a little bit bigger. And I was curious to talk about your process for adding samples and, you know, how you, what your approach is to that. Yeah. Um, well, that's a, that's a good one because a, a lot of that stuff will come from the producer now. So I don't think I've, I probably, in the past year, I actually don't think I've added any drum samples to, to a mix. I have added crash cymbals. I have a few that I like that sometimes with they send me just doesn't work, but they're making a lot of those choices and I'll get live drums with the samples that they want. And, um, usually that, that works. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. <laughs> what, I guess, what, yeah, yeah, what was your, <laughs> what was your actual question? Well, my, my, my question was just like, you know, what is your typical approach to using samples and like, you know, how and when do you oh. decide on, on when you're going to use them? So yeah, I'll try to work with what I have and then, Sometimes the snare just needs like it needs to snap a little more. The kick just doesn't really have that the bottom that I'm looking for. And then I'll go and add to kind of fill in the gaps of what their drums are missing, um, which I guess is the point, right? I mean, if you record a drum set, you know, at like an eight, you can use samples to get it to a nine or a ten, um, just by augmenting and not trying to just bulldoze what they have, unless the drums are just real bad. But that's I haven't seen that in, in a while. Everybody's I don't know. Everybody's pretty good about their drums these days. At least I've been fortunate enough to have people that like their drums. Well, that's a good thing. Good, so. And it's interesting that you said that people are sending you a lot of these tracks that do have a lot of those sample layers built into it. I guess you know that, yeah, that's, my, my, that's my bad for thinking you're doing it in post. But like, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, I, I I'd like to take the credit for it, but these producers, I mean, like I said, they're spending a lot of time getting these songs right. So, you know, their rough mix is pretty good. You know, for the most part, it's sometimes I hear them and I don't know. I'm listening to it like I don't know if I can beat this, but then I pull up the tracks and it. Uh, 
for every reason, once I look under the hood, I can kind of hear my ideas in there. But sometimes these tracks are just, they're, they're good. And, you know, they could master it and put it out, but th they're spending a lot of time getting getting it right. And they have they have access to it, you know? I mean, they can get the same drum samples I have. I have a few of my own that I recorded or just have collected over the years. But, um, yeah, people just, they, they're spending the time on it, mm -hmm. which is nice to see. And I guess also there's, you know, going back to your earlier point of like a great mix has that space and that, that clarity and depth to it. You know, I, I think there's also that there, there's a balance to strike sometimes between adding too much or adding the things that are also going to help give you some of that width and space as well. Right. Right. Which I realized I probably used all the cliche terms I could have to describe a, a good <laughs> mix. <laughs> now that I'm hearing it back. But yeah, yeah, just the the main goal is to not have to hunt. It doesn't have to be like everything in its own space and everything totally, you know, six feet away from everything else. But just being able to hear what needs what needs to be heard and, and listen to what you want to listen to. And if you want to hear the lyrics, you can listen to the singer. If you want to learn what the guitarist is doing, you can listen to him. Um, so it's more about that. I mean. It, I don't know that I win any awards for clarity in the mix, but I think I do a pretty good job of if you want to hear something, you can find it in there. For sure. Well, that, I think that's that's ultimately the the big the big goal, right? Like, you know, it's not a, right. it's, it's not always about making everything like super super detailed and clear because sometimes you need that chaos yeah, of sounds sometimes blending you together. Whatever, sometimes right? there's just too many layers, and you're not going to hear everything. Sometimes I take things out because it's just I know they're not going to hear it, and they don't. You know, but yeah. when they're when they're working on it, it seems like a good idea to add this extra synth that, you know, now that we're in this last chorus, it doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, for sure. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about, especially to do with some of that that size in your mixes is um, I felt like listening to a bunch of songs in your discography, like I, I thought you do a really good job with snare reverb. For for some reason, like I'm a drummer, so maybe I just gravitate towards, oh, okay, towards cool. drum stuff. So that's probably why I'm nerding out about it. But like, I just, <laughs> I just felt like I felt like when I listened to the snare tracks, you do a really good job of blending in some reverbs that make the drums feel bigger and fuller and longer. And maybe some of that is a, a product of some of the saturation you're adding. Some maybe it is like some some reverbs that you're adding. Um, I was just wondering if you have any go-to reverb choices when it comes to mixing snare. Well, when I mix drums in general, I. I start with the overhead in the room and that is a lot of people will just immediately roll off the low end out of those things. And that's where you need that. So those are my, those are like my main drum tracks and I'm adding in like the kick and snare mics to be able to hear what's happening in the room. Like just kind of clarify that. So a lot of the reverb that you're hearing is the room or the overhead or the combination of it. Um, depending on the song, sometimes I'll, you know, slam the room and then I can gate it off the kick and snare. Um, or if I'm, if I just need to add a little bit, if that snare needs a little more space, I'll use the, um, it's the UAD precision, precision, precision reflection engine, that one. And I think it's like a frame. Um, there's like a, and the model, I think, is like a drop diamond. I pick the A-frame and then just kind of mess with the size of that and and the pre-delay just to get it to fit. And I'm, I guess the idea is enhancing that already existing room sound. And a lot of times I'll kick that on in the chorus. Like that's where the, that snare is going to open up. But again, a lot of these tracks often will have, you know, the chorus has a couple more snare layers, you know, and then they're keeping the verse super tight and close, and then it's it might be a sample that's making that snare expand in, in the chorus or whatever it is. But yeah, if I'm adding reverb, it's gonna be that reflection engine. Sometimes Abbey Road, but that gets that has a very specific sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like when it comes to reverb, there's so many so many choices out there, right? Like different there's so many different plugins pl plus too the fact many. that there's different emulations of like plates and rooms and halls and chambers and all that stuff. So, do you have any like that 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 precision A-frame one? Um, is there a specific like is that just like a plate setting that it's using or something like that? 
No, you know what? I think it's just designed to be like it's more of an early early reflection thing. So, and there's different shaders like cube. There's like cylinder. There's the A frame one. I just like I don't know what the other ones are off the top of my head. Um, that just does a really good job of like creating a space, but not clouding up with reverb. Gotcha. So it's it's more of an early early reflection thing. Um, but I I mean I just got the uh, the 480, the U80 480, like last week. I, because there's so many reverbs, and I, I refuse to believe that I needed another reverb. <laughs> and then, I I just demoed that thing, and I was like, oh, that's yeah, that really that's the sound that I've been trying to get out of everything else. Um, so right now, that's that's a winner. But that's like a big that's for vocals. I wouldn't put drums on that typically. Yeah, with what I do. Do you tend to lean on like? shorter reverb times for for drums or do you go long yeah it's gonna depend right i mean if if the song's moving real fast you don't want a long reverb hanging around you know because that snare hit's still swimming like two bars later um if you have the space for it you can go longer but i think i just try to i want the reverb i want you to hear it while it's there and then when you don't need to hear it i want it gone i don't want it still coming down or, or swimming around um it just yeah, I like to hear it when I need it and then get it out of the way. Yeah. So I think that's why the early reflection thing works better for me. For do you drums. ever do anything like side chaining your effects? Yeah, I'll side chain like vocal reverb. Um, the lead vocal will drive that just to kind of push it down while they're singing over it. Um, that's the biggest. That's the biggest use of that is just yeah, just having the lead vocal push down its own reverb and delays. So, so while they're singing, you're not bombarded with all this extra cloud around them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if if I do that. It's it depends. I don't think I do that in too many other places. Well, I think that that's probably one of the the best places to use it because you're really just trying to. You, you typically your vocals are that that thing that's in the center of the mix that's the loudest, and you want that to be as clear as possible. So you kind of get rid yeah. of a lot of the junk around around those lyrics, right? Yeah, what I what I will do is usually in every song I'll create kick and snare triggers. I'll use like the Massey DRT, and um, just I have a kick and snare track that are just the just the blips that it makes, like no samples. It's just the blips, and then those go to they're muted, but they they send out to there's you know the kick has a it sends to a kick trigger, and the snare goes to a snare trigger. And then on both of them, I'll put like a kick and snare trigger so that at any point in the mix, I can like if, if it's the bass or if it's the guitar, or sometimes I got to step on the vocal a little bit. I can use that side chain and and, you know, pull in the kick trigger or if I want the kick and snare to trigger, I have those side chains already set up um, just on their own their own buses. So I can pull them in wherever I can, you know, push down the whole mix if I want. Um, so that's something I, when I prep, I have a little more, I spend a little more time getting that ready to go. That's very cool. So I, so I can use that on, yeah, on anything else, but those are like kind of built in to my session. That's very cool. So, so for that process, for anyone who's maybe unfamiliar with how to set that up, you said you're using Massey DRT? Yeah, I use Massey DRT and then I have, I create two new tracks. So one's for the kick, one's for the snare, and then I'll... If it's not all one snare track, sometimes the snare changes, so I have to go through. But I will, I'll get the trigger points for all of the snare hits and all the kick hits, and print them on the kick and snare track. And then on each track, I have a a prefader send that's just you know either it's the kick trigger or the snare trigger. And then on both of them, I have a second send that's eventually both of them together. So the kicks on one, snares on two, and then both of them are sending to three for instance, and then I can, on any compressor, pull in that bus and drive it off of the kick, snare, or both. That's very cool. Because, yeah, Master DRT, um, I personally haven't used it too much, but it, it makes everything into MIDI notes, right? It can, but also if you don't load in a sample and you just hit render or process, it just puts blips wherever those trigger points are. Oh, nice. So if you're using like another, like if you're going to use slate drums or something, you'll it'll drive off of just a blip. It doesn't have to be an actual sample that's printed in the track. Gotcha. 
Yeah, or, or I give you MIDI notes. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, I've definitely used it with with Trigger before. Because yeah, if you, I think it's just like if you don't have anything in there, it just gives you like yeah, like quick little blips. spike yeah. or something like that, right? Right. That's very cool. And then as far as side chaining, do you, do you typically rely more on um, those blips than like an instrument for like for setting gates and stuff like that? Yeah. So especially if it's coming off the kick and snare. Um, I think the reason I started doing it was there was a while where I was really, um, I would, I would duplicate like the room and I would compress the hell out of it, but then I would gate it and I would drive it off the kick and snare. And I found that by doing it with the blips, I can make it perfectly consistent instead of trying to drive it off the kick and snare mics. Because sometimes there's bleeds, sometimes like they're not. It's a little weaker of a hit. So if I made those blips, it would open up like dead on time every time, just as much as the one before it. And I would have like you know a gated room sound with that. And I just kind of kept that process in there because you know I can time the compressor to duck down as long as I want with just the timing controls. So for the kick and snare, uh, I'll do it off the triggers instead of the mics. If I want something to drive off the vocals, then yeah, that'll come off the vocal parallel bus that I already have set up for the vocal compress compression. I have that, you know, I can pull it in on another compressor to duck the piano or duck the guitars. So that's kind of another one that's built in. That makes sense. So yeah. are you building, are you working off templates whenever you start a mix? Um, I, I guess I have my own template, so... Uh, I'll, um, I usually will get a stack of audio files. I don't always get a Pro Tool session. Mm -hmm. So, because they're in Logic or whatever. So, I have a session build template that I'll just pull in all their audio and it's got my buses set up. And, and really, the only thing that's a template about it is, um, it has like stem buses and then it has my vocal reverb and, a, you know, a tap delay, like a short delay built in, but the rest of it is, is on the fly, you know, like gotcha. I never to spend the time to make a session with like an aux send for every single reverb and delay or effect that I'm going to use. It, it just seems like so much time it takes me two seconds to just make a new track and, and drop it on there. So, so this, the template is really just for the, uh, for the routing. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess some guys like to do it just because, you know, then all your naming is consistent or whatever. And maybe just replace the name if you don't like how their files are named. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, I always tell them to name something, name it relevant, something relevant. So I just like, I don't get like audio one, audio two anymore. Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> luckily they're, they're good about it. And it, it, it is named. Um, and then now that you can batch rename it so you can just pull out like all the stem or all the percussion that they added to the front of everything. Um, but yeah, I, I keep their names because if they want to refer to it and I've changed it, I'm not going to remember, oh, that was like Air Synth and I called it White Synth or whatever. It's like, I keep keep their names. But what does stay the same is my my buses, my VCAs, and then my print track. Because um, I print back into Pro Tools, but that's changing with the session name. That's a, It's a really good point that you brought up about the naming thing. And, you know, I... I, I've kind of found that myself that sometimes sometimes I'll, I'll by habit like I'll just you know I'll use my template and I'll, I'll, have, I'll have all my names in there kick snare blah 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 and uh, you know maybe key one two three that kind of thing or guitar one two three but then yeah inevitably like there's always that like revision that comes through where it's like oh the you know fat Juno synth one or whatever you're like oh shit which one's that right yeah 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 you gotta yeah you can't <laughs> you can't can't change it because it's nice when they do that. It's nice when they know exactly what they want you to turn up or down or change. So yeah, I try to preserve all that. It's it's like it's the easiest way if they're especially if they're the ones that are programming their own stuff or recording their own stuff on the way and it's like they know exactly what track they're talking about and it's not guessing it like oh there's some there's some weird synth sound in there like can you adjust yeah. this like which one you know and that's the thing too I think in recent years like every artist they know what's in their session. It's not like it's not like a producer engineer did it and the artist just kind of knows the rough mix. Like they, they know what these tracks are because they've done something on their own the, the way everybody has a studio now. 
So, so it's kind of nice. They, they know what's going on in there, and they know. Sometimes they want to hear things that I forgot to, oh, oh yeah, I forgot that track was in there. I forgot. I was going to do that, and I didn't. Like, oh, yeah, I'll turn it up. Like, oh, I didn't know there was an extra, I didn't know there was an ad lib there, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely done that. I've forgotten. I'll, I'll come back to it, and then I never do. And then sometimes, sometimes they catch us, sometimes they don't. It might be two days later. I pull it up to do revision. I'm like, "What is this track? That I wasn't even using this." Yeah, I and guess the, the only thing you got to be concerned with, with at that point is like you just have to leave all their tracks untouched. Like I know some guys will like try to condense their session down to make it as small tr- as possible, as few tracks as possible. And if you do that, then you've lost all the the, I, the naming, right? Well, okay, so I do that, but I have once I'm like two or three revisions in, like I. I can delete all the extra, all the inactive tracks. Like, I don't need that. Gotcha. Um, but what I do is strip silence and compact all the audio just because I'm, I'm usually mixing at 88.2, and so it just kind of saves a little bit on the on the hard drive space. But I'll keep that first session I made around with all the tracks. So if, you know, we get into it, and, oh, you know what, maybe I should be using their processed vocal that they sent. Instead, I can go back and pull that in without... You know, by now the the Wii transfer is gone, and there's no way to get it. Yeah. So I keep it around for a little bit, but yeah, I, once it's hidden, if it doesn't come back on, it's like I throw it out. Don't need it. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Like always, save copies of your sessions so you can go back and. Yeah, every step of the way. Well, I I only I say that I only really do a save as for a version. You know, I know there's guys that are like, okay, now I'm working on the lead vocal, so I'm gonna do a save as like. I'll never be able to keep track of that. Yeah. So I just it's whatever version I'm on. I use Soundflow, so I have um I have a button that I hit and it just it'll do a save as and re renumber the end to whatever the next one is. Um and it just I don't think about it anymore, but yeah. it's the easiest way. You just you have your conve- your naming convention so that it's always the same and it's, it's always the same. To, yeah. yeah. That that's cool. Yeah, I uh, I recently got into Soundflow myself too, and uh, it's it's an awesome program. There's there's so much you can do with it, and you just have to you just have to get into it and start finding like, okay, what are the things that I always do, and how do I, you know, standardize yeah, and, this? and you know what, like there there have been so many ver- like variations of that tool. Like I had a slate for a little while, and like he had Batch Commander, and I was like, I'm not spending the time to program all this. This is ridiculous. And then I saw Soundflow, and I was like, this looks kind of it looks cool. I guess I'll try it. And then as I got into it, I mean, I have like this whole iPad full of buttons now that is like, this thing is crazy. It saves me so much time, so much time. Just printing a mix and uploading it like with a button, renaming it and uploading it. Like, yeah. I don't know. Are, are there me, any, it's got to save me hours. Are there any like commands that you've made for yourself that are just like absolute lifesavers? Well, the, um, the, the print one that I made, so it'll, It'll select the the track that's on input, which I'm monitoring through, and then it'll select from the start and end marker. It'll set that track to input. It'll name the track what the session is called. It'll hit record, wait for the wait for the recording to stop. Then it'll rename so it doesn't have like the dot dot one or, or dash one yeah. at the end. It'll just rename what the session is called, which is whatever version I'm on, and then it'll export it to the bounce files folder not the audio files folder. It'll put it, it'll go find the bounce files folder for that session, put it in there at 2448. And then once it's there, I can put it in Stacktune. And Stacktune is one that I use for like, the just mix review process. That's amazing. I, I've never heard of Stacktune before. So it's just like a mix re- revision tool? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a website and you, you can make a project for every artist. And then as you upload the revisions, um, it has a list. So you go to the song, it'll show like, you know, JPC mix one, two, three, whatever we're doing. And then they can go and you can A, B. So you can hit play on the first one and then click play on the second one. And it seamlessly goes back and forth. You can compare and they leave their their comments right in there, like on the waveform. And um, it's that alone saves me so much. I've been using that for the past year. And it's just, it saves the amount of emails back and forth and the text. And this guy wants to call and talk. This guy wants to text you. And it's like two o'clock in the morning and you're getting like five pages worth of text for comments. So that was a big one. Just having everybody go look and you're not, oh, Mike already 
said that. I'm not going to say that there, you know? Yeah. Um, that's just, cool. I've never heard of that It just streamlined that process. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I know of uh, FilePass. That's another one that does something similar. Where it's yeah, like I, can... I looked at that one. I think it was like, it was pretty pricey and I didn't like the paywall thing. There's something else about that. I, I think the like, paywall but... thing is optional, but it, it, it's an option for some people that, you know, if, you, if you're yeah. not getting paid until the session's done kind of thing, then you might want that paywall on there. Yeah, I can see that. It just, I don't know. I, I'd rather just be like, I don't know, just more, just to just focus on just going in and listening to it. But I don't know, Stacktune, there's other ones too. Um, but that one just, that one won. And, and there, it's seamless on on the phone, on on the computer, whatever you're using. And the guys that run it are like super, they're like weirdly responsive. Like if you, if you send a comment like, oh, we should, you guys should add this. Then, like the next morning, you got an email like, "Oh, do you really think so? We we were thinking about that, but we were, you know, we decided not to do it for this reason." Like, it's cool. Like they're just they're, they're they want to know how they can make it better, and they're they're up for the challenge. So it, it's cool. I really like using it. That's cool. And and the artists do too. It's like it, when they haven't seen it before, they're like, "This is the greatest thing." Because just being able to A B these mixes and. They can send the link if they want. They can download it if they want. But that's very cool. And I yeah, and I love cool. that you said you've got it kind of integrated with your with your uh, Soundflow as well. And I just the fact yeah. that you can press one button and all of that stuff happens automatically is yeah. Is great. There's another button like if I'm on the song, I can hit the Stack Tune button and it opens up Chrome, opens up Stack Tune, opens up the latest project in Stack Tune, and I can see their comments right without having to do all this stuff. I just hit it. I can do something in Pro Tools and Stack Tunes open and I can just read their comments. So it, yeah, Soundflow that's it's it's really cool. I got really into it and I didn't think I would. It was just, it was surprising to me. Yeah. Do you find that you're often making your own uh key key commands for Soundflow or using their built-in database of all the user submitted ones? It depends. Um I I've made a lot of my own and sometimes I've made a lot of my own and then found that somebody already did it. Um, because I'll, <laughs> I'll start and I'll, I'll get it pretty close, but it's like not working. So I'll go to the forum and then somebody's like, oh yeah, I did it. And I did it this way and it's okay, great. All right. And then I can like modify from there. Um, I'm not, I don't have the time to like learn JavaScript that deep, but like it's all there if you want to. It, it's, yeah, it's a really cool, it's a really cool program. Yeah. That's one of the things that I, I do love about Soundflow is just like they, have a great user base and everyone is willing to help and a lot of people have already done this stuff and there's some really big engineers that have made their own scripts that you could just quickly quickly download and you know it's yeah it's cool sometimes yeah, you're have, like oh i never I even Andrew thought that Shep's i could make that uh, the the melodyne ones is crazy it's like it's cool that they, yeah they just put that on there and you can use it yeah sometimes you just you don't even realize like oh i i guess i can automate that part of the process and yeah you know then, then yeah, you it got me thinking like well what else can i do with this you know and like even just outside of pro tools like opening up stack tune or like if i'm going to do a zoom session with an artist i can hit a button and it makes the tracks and it's you know sending out listen to like just hitting the button totally i mean just to get <laughs> to get my session going for this podcast, I use Soundflow as well. I press one button, See? it brings up a screen, what episode number, who's the guest, and then like creates my Pro Tools session for me. It like awesome. sends me to my notes of like questions I got for you and all that. Like you know, it just it yeah. really makes everything so easy. You just have to t- spend the time to like do it once, and then you're like, oh shit! Like I save this time every single time. Yeah, and then I'll like make a list if I think of something. Oh, I needed to I needed to split to mono, or I needed to make a stereo track, and then I'll like make a list, and then. And my free time, I'll sit there and screw around with it and, and get it to work. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. It, like I said, I, I've seen other things that do that, and it, it never seemed this easy or useful. I guess it never seemed useful enough. I didn't realize how much time I could really save. But it's, it's one of those things you, you don't think about it, or you're like, oh, it's only like, you know, this is only going to save me 30 seconds here or there. And right. So you don't, you don't think of like the big picture of how many times you're going to hit that button or, you know, all, right. the, all the times you repeat that same step over and over again and how much time it saves you, right? Right. And then when you get, you know, a pile of audio files that are stereo that really only need to be mono, I was using um, Stereo Monoizer. Yeah, that's a great plugin for that. Yeah, that one was cool. But 
still sometimes you don't really know and you get you get into pro tools it's like i need to split all these tracks and just the, the selecting and then the deleting the ones you don't need and just being able to have a button to press to do that and, and even the strip silence i have one for strip silence that i made i don't know it's endless it's yeah yeah no it's really cool, cool. <laughs> i love i love asking people about that stuff because like yeah once once you start getting into it and you realize like that you can make these commands that will shave off time it's like i want to know like what everyone else is using you know to like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it, it was kind of like when like in school one of one of my instructors said like you know if you're asking the ssl if it can do that the answer is yes just because you could route you could do anything on the ssl routing wise and i feel like that's what it is with with soundflow too it's like if you can it do it yeah it can it can definitely do it so you just got to figure out get the coding out of the way but yeah you can do it that's awesome um we had talked about your mix prep setup and and how you were using triggers to you you were always building that into your template or into your session no matter what so that you could rely on those later on are there any are, are there any other steps that you take to make that process of mixing easier for you like any other things that you do ahead before you start the actual mix those are those are the big ones i mean obviously color coding and bussing everything. And again, Soundflow does that for me. It just highlights the drums and hit prep drums and it sends them to the drum bus, it colors them. So color coding and markers are, you know, that's the big one. Everything, Everything's the same color when I look at it, no matter what song it is, you know, the drums are, I, I do, everything is going to like a subgroup, right? So like there's a drum bus, there's the, the drum parallel, and then there's um, percussion, effects, bass, guitar, synths, um, lead vocal, background vocal on every mix, just because they always want those stems anyway. Mm-hmm. So I started mixing with that and not so that, oh, I have all my guitars going here, I can just EQ them together. I don't even really touch them besides automation, but it's more so that when I go to export the session, I have my stems built in. Um, and, and I use... I'll use separate reverbs like per per um, subgroup also. Interesting. Even if it's the same, just so that I, I it's I can print everything out at once. That makes sense. Which is a huge time saver than printing stems, you know, one section at a time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, that, that that's a really good point because so yeah. that that's an end that's like an end process that made it into my mix workflow, just you know, for efficiency's sake. But th- but that's another really good point to bring up too. Is like sometimes. Sometimes it's it's the things that happen at the end of the mix that you can start to bake into your template so that your whole process is faster and easier. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was always, always trying to figure out a way to work faster. Yeah. And not, not to rush through something, but just to not have to spend all that dead time, you know. I, I like to go home at the end of the day, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> I course. got to a point where I wasn't, and I was like, I need to, there's got to be a way to get, get you know get these stems out faster of course and if i got a mix like that that's how i'll mix I'll, I'll figure it out yeah you realize like how much time you've wasted on like these little steps that are just like they're not actually creative stuff it's not it's not even fun stuff no. to do it's just like it's just the process you know so automate that shit get it out of the way yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> how long do you find it normally takes you to finish a mix uh well finish is a loaded word isn't it (laughs) um i don't know i i'd say i have i I have it pretty good like if i had to send it out at six hours i could do it um six hours and then by the time we're totally done it's that mastering it might be 10 12 hours on it um but you know i i plan a song a day and, you know, they get it by the end of the day, sometimes the next morning if I really got to sleep on it. But, yeah, it's, you know, six hours is, I feel pretty good about it. I'm spending like another hour or so getting all that automation right and getting, you know, just kind of the final balance set. And then it's, you know, then it's off to the artist just to kind of bring them in the room. It's not like I'm done with it at that point. It's, Fair. Here's where I'm at. Let me know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Then the revision process starts, and then who knows? Yeah. How long let me know. Better, right? Let me know if I'm going the right way with it before I really start liking this. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That, that's cool. 
Awesome, man. Well, I don't mean to take up too much of your time today, so uh, we can start to wrap up. But if uh, if anyone wants to learn more about you and potentially even work with you or or follow you online, what's the best place for them to do that? Sure. Um, definitely my Instagram. It's mixed by Joe. And um, I have a website also, joecostable.com. But if you go to the Instagram, it's all it's all there. And I try to keep, uh, if you're following along at home, try to keep it updated fairly regularly. <laughs> Awesome. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're working on currently that you can talk about? Not that I want to blow up right now, but um, it, again, if you follow the Instagram, it's it'll be on there. Just there's there's a I just finished a cool album uh, with some some really good friends of mine I've been working with for years, and um, I'm excited for that to come out. And it'll definitely be on my Instagram. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to checking it out, man. Awesome, man. Well, Joe, thank you again for taking the time to do this. It was really interesting to to learn more about your process. And I love, I, I just feel like you have a, a unique approach to some of the stuff. And, and, you know, especially on the idea of like not using compression and that kind of thing. There's so many people that have just been taught like, use this, use this so much. Like, yeah. you know, so it's, it's refreshing to get that. Like I said, take, right? it's probably bored because I'm just not good at it. So I found another way to do it. And, and that works for me. Yeah, you know? but but hey, you found you found a way to do it without doing it, you know. So yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. that's awesome. Cool, man. Well, well, thanks again for taking the time to be on here. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Joe Costable, and I thought that he gave us a ton of great pieces of advice to follow with our mixes and some things that we can try in them. Uh, I love what he was talking about with using the kick and snare triggers, and I like his process of having individual triggers for the kick, snare, and for both of them, because it gives you a lot of flexibility when it comes to sidechaining your effects or sidechaining your gates, and I just thought the way he thought that process through really makes a lot of sense, and it can make your sessions move a lot faster and give you a lot more control over your mixes. I also thought it was really cool to get into the topic of saturation and how he uses it to fatten up his drum tracks. And I also thought it was really fun to hear about how he is implementing programs like Soundflow into his process. I know that we've talked about Soundflow on a couple different episodes already, but I just think it's such a great tool that more and more people need to get into because it can really speed up your workflow and it just makes the process of mixing so much more fun and enjoyable because you can get rid of so many boring mechanical tasks by automating them with a press of a button. And that is something that is available inside of Soundflow. And if you're interested in learning more about Soundflow inside of our show notes, I'll add a link to it so you can check it out and learn more there. It's definitely something that I have been diving deep into more myself recently, and it has just saved me so much time. So I highly recommend that you check it out as well. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. We've got so many great interviews lined up and I definitely don't want you to miss out because there's so much great advice that you'll pick up in these interviews. So uh, definitely make sure to subscribe to that and also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios and I would love to help you with making your recording sound awesome. So if you're looking for a step-by-step process to learn about mixing and you're looking to make the process easy, definitely check out MasterYourMix.com. And while you're there, definitely make sure to get a copy of The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I put out a little while ago that became a number one seller. And inside of this book, I really break down the process of mixing to make it easy and show you exactly what steps you need to take, what things you need to be boosting and cutting with EQ, which frequencies to pay attention to, uh, when to use compression, when to use effects, and so much more. I've really tried to make this book a really simplified step-by-step process to follow so that you're not feeling overwhelmed when it comes to your mixes and instead you have a clear plan of action to follow so that you can start your mix and ultimately know when your mixes are done because that's just equally as important, right? You have to know when your mixes are finished so that you can actually put these songs out. So definitely make sure to check that out. Once again, it's called The Mixing Mindset and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed that and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.